Well, good morning, Rock Valley Bible Church. And uh, I just want to uh, give praise to the Lord for this opportunity to allow me to speak to you this morning. Uh, can you hear me okay in the back? I'm not, I don't, I don't like the uh, mobile mic. I like the stationary one. So if you can't hear, just raise your hand. <clears throat> you know, when Steve uh, spoke to uh, Darren and I about four months ago about preaching, you know, his comment was, well, you know, you've got four months to prepare for this, you know. And I'm going, sure, you know. The problem with it, there's actually two problems. The first problem is the time. Because it's almost like going to a car dealership, you know, and, and the more time you have, the more options you put into the car. You know, pretty soon the car is too big to drive, you know, kind of a thing. And so that was the, that's one of my big fears, is that you study so much that you, you just pile it on and, and uh, it really becomes overwhelming. The other thing is that, um, you know, if you don't do this on a, on a, on a uh, current basis, if you're kind of occasional, you know, um, you kind of develop what, what Darren and I call the spirit of weaniness. You know, where you just you're just not used to. See, I did use it, Darren. He said, "Are you going to use the spirit of weaniness?" Where you know it's you're looking for the power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, so that's what we want is we want the power of the Holy Spirit. So today's message is how to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that God would give me power to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. <clears throat> Our gracious Holy Spirit, we thank you for giving us the initial internal calling that, that prepared us for salvation. We thank you that you are now indwelling us as believers, active in our lives, and the author of special gifts. We thank you for the convicting of us of, of sin, of, of sanctifying us and empowering us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. We now ask you to fill us, Father, control and empower us as we learn about you and know how important you are to us. And in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now, if you are kind of uncomfortable with that prayer, you're not alone. You notice I addressed the prayer to the Holy Spirit. How often have you heard that done? Not very often. Usually it's to God the Father or God the Son, isn't it? And so, you know, we're very privileged in that we've been going through the book of Acts to learn about the Holy Spirit these past couple of months. And so my last message, of course, was on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, his office, and how he, was, he came to glorify Jesus Christ, and how by following the Holy Spirit, we will produce fruit in our life. We talked about this, the concept of spiritual breathing, which is exhaling. In other words, confessing our sins before God, according to 1 John 1, 9, inappropriate or asking for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is Inhaling, So exhaling, confessing our sin, inhaling, which is appropriating the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to look at witnessing or sharing our faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a study on pneumatology. And it's kind of interesting. I was talking to a, a Tom Clinton recently about uh, his experience in seminary. And uh, he said, you know, Phil, probably in the, the five years I was in seminary and grad school, I probably had one class on the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not surprising, therefore, to see that many of our churches don't hear about the Holy Spirit very much. In fact, I was talking to my mother the other day about this, and, and I said, Mom, how many sermons have you heard in all the years you've gone to your church about the Holy Spirit? And he said, she said, one. And it was only at our request that the, that the pastor preached on the power of the Holy Spirit, on the Holy Spirit himself. And so, you know, this particular problem is, is dominant in our churches today. For some reason, pastors and churches want to stay away from the topic of the Holy Spirit. I don't know why. I think it's probably because, you know, on one end we've got the charismatics that, that are kind of mystical in their approach to the Holy Spirit. And the other end we've got the evangelicals who are afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit because they're afraid they're going to swing too close to the charismatics. In fact, it has become such a problem that uh, Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God. How many of you have read this book, The Forgotten God? Anybody here? An excellent book. And when uh, I talked to Tom Clinton and I talked to Steve about the Holy Spirit, um, you know, we saw the need to talk more about his ministry and his place in our lives. Now, 
My experience with witnessing with the Holy Spirit goes all the way back to my days in college, and I like to refer to them because, you know, when I came up in the church, there was very little mentioned about the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, how he's responsible for so many aspects and dimensions of sanctification. And so when I was a freshman at Wright College in Chicago in 1970, I wanted to, um, I was kind of at an impasse in my life, I wanted to to plumb the depths of, of, of God and the scriptures. And, and so I affiliated with a um, group called Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, Campus Crusade for Christ is well known for two things. They're well known for the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have something called transferable concepts where they talk about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how to walk in the Spirit, how to witness in the Spirit, how to love in the Spirit and many other things that uh, pertain to the Holy Spirit. The other thing that I like about Campus Crusade is that they're very aggressive in the sharing of their faith, and they challenged us to share our faith likewise. And for me, it was a perfect fit. And after practicing and doing role-playing, in fact, if we can have, there it is. Okay, have you heard of the Four Spiritual Laws? Has anybody seen that book or ever heard of that book? Anybody ever used this book in witnessing? Okay, a couple people have. All right, we were trained in how to use this book effectively, and it's interactive. In other words, you, you don't just pass it out as a track. You read through it with that person, and you have their undivided attention. And it, it, there's a transitional phrase from topic or from law to law. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But here I was. I was trained in this new position as sharing my faith. It was a great fit for me. And I wanted to get behind the wheel. I wanted to go out there and share my faith actively. And so... Armed with a bunch of student religious surveys and a bunch of four spiritual laws, I set out for the student union for my first prospect. Okay? And so I approached a young hippie who was sitting at the end of, a, of the, uh, the, the student union, and he had long red hair and a beard. And I asked him if he would help me with my survey. As I looked closely at this young man, though, I realized he was a friend of mine from high school. And I'd lost touch with him. He'd become kind of a hippie. But as I looked at him, I, saw, I thought to myself, great Lord, this guy, he is a perfect fit for Team Jesus. You know, he's a great intellect, great athlete, a natural leader. And this scholar would make a great, great addition to the family of God. So I got excited. And I was getting ready to share my faith with him. And as we made some small talk, I realized that he was blown out of his mind on drugs. He was high on something or another. I don't know what it was. But though he seemed happy to, to see me, and you know, he wasn't interested in knowing anything about being high on Jesus at that point. And so I walked away very crestfallen, very, very dejected, that he wasn't going to come into the kingdom. I knew that I had what he needed. Now, his name is Randy, and I want, I'll talk more about him later on. But anyhow, as I walked... From the student union, kind of thinking, well, why, why God? Why did, you know, this, this guy I know so well and had been such a good friend, why, why, why did he, had he gone that way? And, and as I walked away from the student union, union, I bumped into another classmate that I hadn't seen since grammar school. His name was Bobby Helt. And Bobby, I remember to be as a, a very shy young man, very, very introverted. In fact, uh, you know, he never had many friends. He, he played in the school band. He played a French horn. You know, he, he just was kind of a loner. And sure enough, he hadn't changed much because he was on his way to the chess club. You know, and so, but something inside me said, you know what, you need to go along with Bobby to the chess club. And so I, I went along with him, and, and he challenged me to a chess match, and I reluctantly agreed I think he beat me in like eight moves or something like that. You know, I wasn't very good at chess, still am not. But, you know, as I was playing chess with him, I sensed that the Holy Spirit was setting up what I call divine appointment. And maybe I was to share my faith with Bobby. After the game was over, you know, uh, I asked Bob if he'd mind giving me his opinion to the four spiritual laws. And he said no. And so as we went through the four spiritual laws right there in the chess club, um, you know, we, we looked at the laws together and I was reading through that and he was kind of nodding his head in agreement. 
And we came, we came to the end where they, they have a choice. And maybe you can put the next slide up there, Chuck. These two circles. And, and what these circles represent is the one on the top is the self-directed life where all the interests are kind of controlled by self. Jesus is outside the life. Self is on the throne of the life. And at that point, you know, Christ is not in that person's life. And those interests are kind of resulting in discord and frustration because sin has entered in. The bottom circle represents the Christ-directed life, where the person has embraced Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And now that those interests are controlled by, by the Savior. Self is off the throne, no longer in charge. Self or ego is off there. And I, I asked Bobby, I said, Bobby, which, which, of those circles, which of those circles best represents your life? And, and he says, well, the top one does, Phil. And I asked him the question, well, which circle would you like to have represent your life? He says, well, I want the bottom one. And so right there in the chess club, we prayed and I said the sinner's prayer and I, I didn't know any better. I just said, hey, Bob, why don't you just say the sinner's prayer after me? You just repeat this prayer after me and, and you'll know Jesus. And he did right there. We both bowed our head. Now, many of you have seen people pray the prayer or walk the aisle or get baptized or, or say some kind of religious thing along the way and, and you know they can point back to the time when they did that but you know what there was no change in their life and so I kind of wondered about that I wonder if this was a was this a, a real trans, transformation was this a real um, salvation experience well let me tell you the rest of the story as, as our friend used to say the next part of the story was a confirmation that led me to believe that the Holy Spirit did in fact set up a divine appointment because what Bobby did is he went home that afternoon. He was in a commuter college like I was, and he met his brother Chuck. Chuck was a student at University of Illinois Chicago Circle Campus, another commuter school, and they got together at the house that night, and Bob happened to say, you know, I, I had kind of an interesting experience today. I, you remember Phil Gusky from grammar school? He said, yeah. He said, well, I had the most interesting conversation about God with Phil today. And he's, he showed me a little book, and I thought it was really a great little book. And his brother Chuck said this. He says, well, that's interesting because I ran into some people from an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ Today, too. And they showed me a book called The Four Spiritual Laws. And I eagerly prayed the prayer to invite Christ into my life. What's amazing about this story is they both received Christ at the same hour of the day in different locations. And you say, well, again, you know, that's kind of, is that a coincidence? Well, it's interesting to note that as time passed, the decisions proved to be authentic because the entire family, health family, came to the Lord as time went on. They joined our church. Bobby Helt, my friend, went on to Moody, graduated from Moody, and went to work for the school and worked there for 35 years. Became a deacon in his church. And his brother Chuck went on to become a full-time staff member in, Christian, in a Christian organization faithfully serving the Lord. A coincidence, you say. Coincidence? Not hardly. Well, let's talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in witnessing. And so the first part of my message is the Holy Spirit and witnessing. Now, before we talk about the Holy Spirit and his power in our life to witness, we need to get some, um, some business out of the way, first of all. And the first order of business is who's responsible for witnessing? Who is responsible for sharing their faith in Christ? It's sad to say that the average churchgoer in this country believes that it's up to the preacher or the hired gun or the clergy or the most qualified dude to do the work, to reach the lost. In fact, they have a misunderstanding that uh, the main soul-winning opportunity takes place in these walls right here. Okay, that's mistaken. Now, if most of the people in the church were pagans, I would say that probably makes a lot of sense. Now, now that being said, I want you to understand clearly that whenever somebody comes into this pulpit in this church, we're always going to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if there's people that come that don't know Jesus, they're going to understand clearly the message before they leave. Plus, we have to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves daily. We have to be reminded of what happened there. But it's not primarily the preacher's job to win souls. Well, whose is it if it's not the preacher's? Well, turn to me to Ephesians 4, chapter 11, or verse
verses 11 and 12. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Paul says this. He says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Well, if you look at that verse carefully, you'll notice there's a few people missing. They're not on the scene anymore. One is the apostles. The other is prophets. There aren't too many prophets out there now in terms of those who predicted the future. But there are evangelists, there are pastors, there are teachers. And what is their job? Their job is to train you and I of how to share our faith. Equipping means, really in the Greek, it's perfecting or completely furnishing us to do the task. We're responsible for evangelizing. We're responsible for preaching. We're responsible for teaching. We're being perfected by these leaders in the church. It's our job to do that. So that's the first order of business, that we are all responsible for teaching and preaching and evangelizing. Now, effective witnessing is a power given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus realized as his earthly ministry was coming to an end and he was gauging the response of his followers that they weren't very secure in the thought of Jesus leaving town, of ascending to the Father, or whatever they thought was going to happen. So, God the Father came up with a perfect strategy, and I call this the Great Commission strategy, to help them, them assist them in, in winning the, the loss to, of the world. And it, basically it goes like this. There's three parts of the Great Commission strategy. And one of the wonderful things about this particular strategy is that it's effective today. Here's the first part of the strategy. Each believer would be indwelt individually, personally, by the person of Jesus Christ in the form of the Holy Spirit. John 14:16 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That word helper is interpreted other places as counselor, intercessor, Comforter or advocate. I call the Holy Spirit in a very uh, uh, respectful term the holy mas- uh, multitasker. The holy multitasker. In fact, if you think about it, the multitasker of the Holy Spirit is doing all kinds of things. He's helping us to avoid walking in the flesh, giving us power over sin, and at the same time he's empowering us to witness. He's comforting the bereaved widow and then guiding some young Christian in her studies as she's going forward. He's taking our childish, immature, just selfish prayers and petitioning the Father with beautiful prayers on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is doing all these things. He is multitasking all the time. He's giving us and perfecting all kinds of spiritual gifts in this body of believers right here. So each believer is empowered by Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Number two... Jesus realized that he could only be in one place at one time. And, and in John 14:12, he talks about the works that I do, you will do, but greater works than these will you do. Now, he's not talking about raising the dead or, or healing the sick. What he's talking about, greater in terms of numeric greatness. He is wanting to create an army of ambassadors for Christ to go out there and witness. And so... His strategic planning was to create a a mass army, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, because with us being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we are now part of the Lord's army, the army of ambassadors. The third part of the strategy is that the Holy Spirit helps in the work of evangelism by giving us power and confidence. And all we have to do is look at Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's all-encompassing. When we're talking about Jerusalem and Judea, that's to the Jews, to Samaria, those were the people that were half-Jewish and half-pagan, and then finally to the remotest parts of the earth, those are to the pagan people. Now, was this particular strategy effective? All we have to do is look at Acts chapter 2 to see what happened, how there were 3,000 people converted in that chapter, described to us, and there were ten unique characteristics or proofs of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. 
And we could go to Acts 3 and see the same thing. We, we turn over to Acts 6 very, very quickly, and then we see that there's some specific tasks that are assigned. And um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the seven men that were appointed. Now, these were deacons to serve the needs of the church. But the unique thing about that in verse 3 of chapter 6 is that they were men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. It's required of a spiritual leader to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been in many churches where the qualification for deacon or elder or leader kind of went like this. Who's available? They didn't look at the qualifications. They look at the availability. And as a result, what we have is we have poor choices equaling poor outcomes. All right. The Holy Spirit does empower us to witness. Now, part two is the Holy Spirit and the divine appointment. What is a divine appointment, anyhow? Well, I looked it up. Dennis Rainey, who's the uh, president of Family Life Ministries, said a divine appointment is a meeting with another person that has been specifically and unmistakably ordered by God. Let me say that again. A divine appointment is is a meeting with another person that has been specifically and unmistakably, unmistakably ordered by God. Has anybody here ever been in a divine appointment? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. You know when you're in a divine appointment. You know when the Holy Spirit is prompting you to speak. Now, he goes on to say this. He says, yet I sometimes wonder how many of these supernatural scheduled meetings I've missed because I didn't have my spiritual radar turned on. So we're going to talk a little bit about, in our text, that divine appointment in Acts chapter 8. So I'd like you to turn there to Acts chapter 8, which is really the, the main text for our, our study. And so <clears throat> in the first 25 verses, and I'm not going to go through that right now, but the first 25 verses and starting, starting at verse 4, Philip has gone to Samaria. Now, now this Philip that we're talking about is not one of the apostles. I was kind of confused until I really studied this carefully. I thought that Philip was one of the apostles that, that walked with Jesus. He was not. This is Philip the disciple, or Philip the um, deacon, the evangelist. But it's interesting that um, he was also appointed to serve tables. But at some point down the road, what happened is that he is also now tasked with the responsibility of doing evangelism. So what he has done here is he's become multi-gifted, or as we used to say in the army, he's cross-trained, not only to serve people at the table, but also to do evangelism. Now, going down to verse 5, we begin to see what Philip has done in Samaria. Now, remember, he's gone to Samaria, which is part of the Great Commission, isn't it? To Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria. And I say that he is doing what I call the three Ps. First thing in Verse 5 is that he is proclaiming Christ. He is proclaiming Christ. And for you children to have children's notes, that's one of those particular answers. He's proclaiming, proclaiming Christ. He's preaching the word of God. In verses 6 and 7, he's performing signs. Signs that are authenticating his authority. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick and the lame. So he's performing signs. That's the second P, performing signs. And if you go down to verse 12, we're seeing the response of his preaching. People are believing. People believed. People believed. So proclaim Christ, perform signs, and people believed. And so when the apostles in Jerusalem heard what was going on in Samaria, they just couldn't hardly believe it. I think Peter and John said, well, what's going on? These aren't our brethren. These are Samaritans. Let us go down there and verify what Philip's work has done. So they hop on the bus. No, they didn't have a bus. They, they hot-foot it down to Samaria, and they look and see what Philip is doing. And so God's strategy is beginning to expand. And so now we come to that portion in verse 25 where Philip is given a new assignment. Philip and John have gone down and verified the work of The Holy Spirit have uh, placed their hands on these new believers and they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And in verse 26 it says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
Get up. Now, that's an angel. I don't know about you. I haven't seen any angels appear to me lately, but this was a special angel. And angels, of course, we could spend a lot of time talking about. But this particular angel was really specifically there to promote the gospel, to promote evangelism. And, of course, angels have many different tasks, but this is the first time we really see an angel that's promoting the gospel of Christ, as far as I know. So he tells Philip, get up and go down to this particular road. Here's the third part of the Great Commission. South of Gaza, he's going to meet somebody who's from the remotest parts of the world, a man from Ethiopia. So the angel tells Philip to get up and go. Philip immediately gets up and goes without hesitation. Now, we look at this Ethiopian and we find out some specific things about him. And this is very interesting. I didn't really I did a little bit of a character study on the Ethiopian. And it says this in verse 27. It says, So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. What are the things that we find out about this Ethiopian? Well, first of all, what that man's position was was very high. Uh, Ethiopian eunuchs were not just in charge of harem-keeping in those days, but they were also responsible as ambassadors for many nations. Now, it was forbidden for the Jews to have anything to do with the eunuch. They were considered unclean. And so it's very interesting, again, that Philip is going to speak to somebody who is considered to be um, an outcast in their society. But he's a very influential man in government. The second thing we see about the Ethiopian, is that it appears that he's a a Jewish proselyte. Now, we don't think he's from a Jewish heritage. He might have been, but it appears he's more of a proselyte. He's there to worship in Jerusalem. He's embraced the gospel of Judaism, or the Old Testament faith at that point. And in those days, they're required to go to celebrate at least three times in Jerusalem. And so he goes to Jerusalem to worship. So he is a man of faith. The third thing we realize is that he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading. He's reading. He's a man of education. He's a man of letters. He's informed. He probably has an entourage because he's a very important man. He's in charge of the queen's treasury. Okay? Here's the fourth thing we notice about him. If you jump down to verse 31, he's confused about his faith. Verse 31 says, and he said, well, how could I understand this unless somebody guides me? He's confused about his faith. Now, where have we heard this before? How does this sound familiar to you? Somebody who is successful in their profession. Somebody who has a semblance of faith and religion. Somebody who is educated but somebody who is very confused about their religion. Who does that sound, sound like to you? How about the typical American? The typical American, fairly successful in their profession, educated, have a little bit of faith, have some idea of who God is in this society, but is confused about God. So the things that we're talking about here apply to us today as well. Now, he's returning from Jerusalem, sitting in his chariot, and the Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah 53. Verse 29, if you go to verse 29, it says, And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join him in his chariot. Go up and join this Ethiopian in his chariot. It's not a directive from an angel at this point. It's a directive from the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know if the Holy Spirit actually spoke to him verbally, or whether this was uh, an impression that he gave Philip. It doesn't say, but it just says that the Holy Spirit directed Philip to go up to that chariot, run up to him. Now, one of the things that we need to find out about the Holy Spirit today is, how does the Holy Spirit speak to you and I today? Well, how many here have ever felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit in their lives? Can I see a show of hands? All right. That's what a lot of us call the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. 
the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And so in regard to this divine appointment, the Holy Spirit will tell us, and that's what happened with Bobby, who now, by the way, is Bob Helt. But the Holy Spirit was prompting me, this still small voice in, in me was telling me, you better talk to this person about faith, things of, of the Lord. Now, one of the things that I know about the still small voice is it only comes to people who are walking in the Spirit. One of the things that we see in our churches today is that we're consumed with self-indulgence. And a lot of times we're spending time trying to figure out what's wrong in our lives to the point where we, we kind of disregard those that are in need. And so I, I want to caution you that, um, you know, you need to be walking in the Spirit in order to have that still small voice come in. Because if you're so engrossed with your own problems, you're not going to be outward. I call it enlargement of the heart. Your heart becomes enlarged by the Holy Spirit. You begin to see the needs in other people. You're sensitive to their needs. You're giving words of affirmation and encouragement. You're giving the ability to witness to those people. And you're given confidence for the, for the moment. And so one of the things that we have to be careful of is this self-indulged indulgent attitude. And we can get away from that by walking in the Spirit. In fact, um, Paul says in Galatians 5.16, he says, you know, walk by the Spirit and therefore you will not carry out the occasions of the flesh. So the Holy Spirit is required in directing us to that divine appointment. We need to keep our spiritual radar up. We need to be prayed up for the occasion when somebody would come our direction and be ready for witnessing service. So Philip was in the right place at the right time for that divine appointment. Now the interesting thing about verse 30, it says this. He says, Philip ran and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So Philip wasn't just walking in the Spirit, was he? Philip was running in the Spirit. Now, I'm glad that the Lord is not requiring us to run in the Spirit. <laughs> You'd be okay with that, Tim, because you're a runner. I'm not. Okay? But walking in the Spirit, he's at the right place at the right time. And he pursues after the Ethiopian, Ethiopian and he asks the question, Do you understand what you're reading? Now, the Lord has Philip in the right place at the right time with the right question. And so it's important to make conversation with those that we're looking to talk to about the gospel. In order for the Lord to use us effectively, we've got to engage in conversation. But why is it that we often avoid that opportunity? Well, there's a couple reasons, okay? One of the, one of the reasons, I believe, that we avoid the opportunity of witnessing actively by opening our mouth and sharing the gospel is we just don't have any confidence. We don't have confidence. Uh, maybe if we haven't practiced at it. Now, I believe if you walk in the Spirit, you're going to have confidence because one of the things that we don't have, if we, don't, if we lack confidence, what's at, the, what's at the root of not having confidence? FOP. FOP, F-O-P. What's FOP, class, church? FOP. I've talked about this twice before. FOP stands for what? Fear of Fear of people. Fop. You've got fear of failure, fear of God, fear of people. You see, when we don't have confidence in our ability to share, we have fear of people. And so walking in the Spirit will help us overcome fear of people. In fact, Galatians 5.22 tells us that the, fruit, the first fruit of walking in the Spirit is what? Love. Love. And if we have love for other people, we look beyond ourselves. We look at meeting the needs of other people. We look at trying to find out if there's something we can do in that person's life to reach that person for Christ. We're no longer hung up on our own problems at that point. We are beyond ourselves. Our heart is enlarged because we're walking in the Spirit. But you say, Phil, I, I, I don't know what to say to people. I don't know what to say to people about the gospel. Well, you know, that's why Jesus gave us his helper, the Holy Spirit. And it says in John 14, 25, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I have said 
to you. So the first problem we have is fop. The second problem is we don't know what to say. The third problem we have is that when we do know what to say, we haven't practiced it enough. We haven't rehearsed it enough. One of the things that was really helpful to me, and this goes with anything that I've done in life, to get good at it, you've got to practice at it. As I say, you know, before you can run, you've got to walk. Before you walk, you've got to crawl. Before you crawl, you've got to try. You've got to try. Get up there and try. And so practice is very important. We, wanted, we want sharing the gospel to be second nature to our, to our uh, approach here. <clears throat> now, one of the things that I notice is that over the years I've heard many Christians say, well, you know what? Um, I think my testimony, the way I live my life, is more important than the words I say to people. Well, it's called living a good testimony. And I will agree that, that you need to love others and do good deeds. It's part of the gospel, isn't it? But you know what? There's a danger there. And the danger is this, that if, if the words don't connect with the actions, then the people that you're trying to communicate with are going to do what? They're going to think that the gospel is based on works, being good. Doing good things. That's why you've always got to marry up good works with the gospel, with the verbal gospel. They have to understand why you're doing what you're doing. It's because of Jesus Christ. In Romans 10:14 says, How will they hear without a preacher? You've got to be a preacher. You've got to preach the word of God. So here's some practical helps, okay? And I brought these um, today. Uh, one of the things that uh, Ryan gave me, McDowell gave me, was he gave me a packet. And these are things that, that you can use as tools. I kind of like this one. How about that? Will that catch your attention? <laughs> what, better, what better way to, to catch most Americans' attention than to offer a $100 bill, right? It's got a little thing on the back, which is a gospel message. And there's other little tracks. And one of the tracks that I think you gave this to me, Ryan, was this, are you a good person? Okay, and we use this track in our, in our church quite effectively. And so one of the things you can do is to open up the conversation is to give out a track. I think it's a very inoffensive way to appeal to people. And then I have another one. Let's see here. I'm going to throw these down here. There's about ten tracks in that. I thought they were cool tracks. They really were. And then Tom Wietek gave me some other tracks. And I like this one. How many of you have seen this one? What do they call that track? That's a chick publication. Chick. And we used Chick publications back in college. They're kind of a cartoon version of it, but they're attention getters. But they contain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you, if you haven't got to the place in your life where you can verbalize the gospel to somebody at this point, give them a track. Open up the conversation. Ask them what they thought about that. I did that twice this last week as far as uh, witnessing was concerned because I didn't have time to really spend um, 10 minutes, 15 minutes communicating my faith to those two people. All right, well, let's go on. I want to make sure I get through my text here. So we go to verse 32 and 33. And Philip is there in the chariot with the Ethiopian. And one of the things that he is asked... Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. I kind of went a little, little too far forward. Go back to verse 31. Here's the thing that's real important, I, I think, in terms of communicating your faith. Verse 34 or 31 says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And so when Philip asks the question, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian will respond with, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And one of the things that we have to realize, folks, is that we have to be playing an instrumental part in people's lives as a mentor, as a coach, as a spiritual leader. We have to be there and available for the Lord to use us in the life of a person to help explain things. And we use the gospel, we use the scripture to do that. So it's important for you to follow up with scripture. In fact, we know what 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says. And uh, we have to be equipped for every good work. And every good work also includes witnessing, sharing your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, now I'll jump down to verse 32 and 33. And these are quotes from Isaiah. And these two quotes, or these two particular verses, the question that, that is being asked here is this. 
And the Ethiopian asks the question, please tell me of who does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? And there's, in verse 34, the Ethiopian is asking that million-dollar question. And I was talking to Steve, uh, Pastor Steve, about this some time back. And he says, if you ever look at a Torah, which is the Jewish Old Testament, you'll find that there's a well-worn passage, more worn than any other part of their particular scripture. And it, it's right there at, at Isaiah 53. They want to know, who are they referring to here? Who is this, this suffering person referring to? Is it pertaining to Isaiah himself? Is it pertaining to Israel? Or is it pertaining to the Messiah? So this is not an unusual question that this Ethiopian is asking. And so, of course, the question is being asked by the Ethiopian. And one of the things that we have to realize is that no one seeks God actively unless God prompts them to do so. I'm not going to go into a lot of explanation about this right now, but just uh, as far as it goes, it says that for the mind, this is Romans 8, 7 and 8, says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the question is, how is it, the, how is it that this Ethiopian is asking the question pertaining to Scripture? He seems to be interested. There's an inward uh, prompting for this Ethiopian to ask that question? Well, the answer is that it's the sovereignty of God. And the answer is found in John 6.44. And he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him draws, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the idea is that we can't come to God on our own volition. We can't approach God. Nothing in our being will allow us to do that because of our sin. Totally dead. You can't resurrect a dead man. A dead man can't be speaking on his own. A dead man cannot approach God. And so one of the things that we have to realize is that God has to reach out and through God's mercy and through his grace, that particular Ethiopian receives the internal call. Now, there's a combination of calling that goes on here for that particular situation. For the person to be saved, it's a combination of what we call the internal call, which is the Holy Spirit that's preparing the person's heart to receive the gospel, and the external call, which is what we call the gospel call or the external call. The internal call is the Holy Spirit preparing our heart. The external call is that person responding to the scripture. So how is that played out here? Let's take a look at the external call. In verse 35, we see the scriptural model for Preaching the gospel, the scriptural model for preaching. Okay, it's verse 35, excuse me. Verse 35, it says this. Here's the, here's the key to scriptural preaching. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began from the scripture. He preached Jesus to him. Three parts. Part number one, Philip opened his mouth. The Holy Spirit gave Fill up the confidence and boldness to preach the gospel. Number two, he began where? He began, he began from the scriptures. The Holy Spirit gave him knowledge of the scriptures and used it as his authority to preach to the Ethiopian. And that's very important because Jesus used the same when he rebuked Satan. And the third part is he preached Jesus to him. He kept the main thing the main thing. One of the things that he did not do is he did not talk about the state of the government. He didn't talk about the fact that there were political issues on the horizon. He preached Jesus. And the greatest example we see of that is back in uh, the example where Jesus is testifying to the Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritan woman tried to change the topic. The Samaritan woman tried to say, well, you know, your particular faith says that you worship in Jerusalem. Ours says that, you know, because we're um, Samaritans, we worship someplace else. And Jesus said, no. He says, no, hey, let's keep the main thing the main thing. He talked about himself as the Messiah. And so that's what Philip did. Philip opened his mouth. He used the scripture and he preached Jesus. That's all we need to do. We don't have to talk politics we don't have to talk apologetics. We don't have to mount a, a very vigorous um, 
campaign of, uh, of intellect on that person. All we have to do is those three things. Part three, Jesus or the Holy Spirit produces the fruit. Okay, we're going to wrap it up here. One of the things that we have to expect is that the Holy Spirit will produce the fruit. And the wonderful benefit that comes along with understanding the doctrines of grace is being relieved of the burden of having to sell people into the kingdom. Now, let me tell you what that means to me. That's an awesome, awesome concept. Because I thought, in my efforts, if I didn't preach the gospel hard enough, these people wouldn't come to Christ. If I wasn't sharp enough, if I wasn't intelligent enough, if I didn't didn't have the apologetic approach, that I wasn't doing my part. But you see, ultimately God determines who will be granted the grace unto salvation. Our job is described in Mark 4 as a sower who presents the gospel. And as I said last week in church, I realized that, you know, only 25% of the time as the gospel is presented, you'll probably see some fruit. It might fall on the good ground. Now, I don't know if it's 25% or 10% or 50%. It's not up to me to decide that. But what it says to us is that we need to sow and we need to sow and we need to sow again. Because somewhere along the line, the gospel, that seed will fall on good soil and spring up 30, 60, and 100 fold. Again, in Matthew 19, Jesus could not convert the rich man. Now, this is an interesting concept as well, because you think Jesus, with all his power and his authority, could convert people by his powerful signs. But you know that rich young ruler, he wasn't converted. And Jesus said this when they asked him, well, why wasn't this this man converted? Rich can't get into the heaven. Well, how is it possible for them to be converted then? And what was Jesus' response? He says, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So it's up to God to bring the fruit. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the internal call of the Holy Spirit and the external call of the gospel through the scripture. Verse 36, was Philip's attempt successful? Was he successful at witnessing? Shake your head, yes, he was. Okay. But he wasn't successful because the Ethiopian responded. He was successful because he was witnessing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You know, as much as we would like to see the fruit, it may not come immediately. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And last night... I was reviewing my message in in John 4. Turn over there real quick. We've got a few minutes here. John chapter 4, verses 37 and 38. He said this. This was amazing. I caught this last night as I was preparing to to preach. He says 37 and 38. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Interesting, isn't it? We may not see the fruit right away. And in fact, do you remember my story about my hippie friend Randy? Let me tell you what happened. Facebook is a marvelous thing. A couple years ago, I was looking up some old high school buddies, and I happened to run across Randy. And... uh, Something very amazing happened. Um, I found out that later he was converted. He went to seminary and he became an army chaplain. Praise God. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You know, it was amazing. You know, did my witness, my witnessing have any effect? I don't, I don't know because, you know, he doesn't even remember our conversation in college. All I know is that God's word is powerful and effective and it does not return unto us void, does it? It does not return to him void. And so, we can expect the Holy Spirit to produce fruit because God's promise is that none perish, but that all might come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3.9. And he says this, he says, This is the confidence which we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked from him. That's 1 John 5.14 and 15. 
So if we have the confidence of asking according to his will, he answers. And that's just so reassuring. He wants to bless us. And when we pray according to his will, he will. But we may not see the fruit right away. But be prepared to see it at some point. Maybe you'll have the opportunity to reap where somebody else has sown. I hope so. I hope that's been your, your experience in times past. One conclusion, there's a call to action. I always like the call to action because it gives you some practical things that you can do. And there's four things that I want you to kind of concentrate on here. First thing is that we want to make sure that we are filled, controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Pray that you are filled, which means controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're all indwelt, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all filled, controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We must be walking in the Spirit, actively walking in the Spirit for us to see fruit and to be used of God. Number two, find a track or a portion of Scripture that you feel uh, comfortable with. I, like, I, I kind of like the Four Spiritual Laws booklet. Now, some people would, would take issue with this. Okay? But that's all right. That's okay. Find something that you like. Hand it out to people. Or... Uh, find a portion of scripture, but use it as a storyline. Use it as a storyline when you, when you go ahead and reach out to people. And, and then practice with it. Practice makes perfect. It really does. Practice with it. That's one of the things that we need to do more of, Tom, is practice with the gospel. I know you do. I know Ryan does. Dan, you probably do too. Practice with what you're going to tell them. Number three, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's still small voice that it might lead you to a divine appointment. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's still, small voice to lead you to a divine appointment. That's the third thing you need to be aware of. Be sensitive. Take your eyes off yourself. Look toward others. See their needs. Enlarge in your heart. And fourth, expect the Lord to produce the fruit as you actively share your faith. Expect the Lord to produce the fruit. The Holy Spirit will produce fruit. All right, with that being said, I want to ask Ryan to come up and lead us in a final song. And this song I, I asked Ryan to, uh, to do because it was one of the first songs I ever learned. You might find it familiar, too, so... That's kind of fun. <laughs> I'm just a big kid. <laughs> well... Praise God. Uh, thank you very much this morning for uh, coming to worship with us. And uh, let, let me close this in, word, in a word of prayer. I'll go ahead and ask, um, uh, say grace over the, the meal too. Okay. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just, we just thank you and praise you so much for your Holy Spirit. Father, the fact that we are indwelt with your Holy Spirit, we ask you to show us how to continue to walk in your Spirit, Father. We ask you to show us how to share our faith effectively with those around us, those in our family, those in our workplace, wherever we might be, Father. We pray that you'd give us a storyline that is exciting, Father, as the gospel is to us. Father, we want to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's still small voice. And Father, when we see a divine opportunity, may we not blow it, may we not shrug it off, Father. Give us opportunity and boldness to, to step out in faith, Father, and, and answer that call. And finally, Father, we pray for the fruit that will be produced because we ask in faith and we ask according to your will. And Father, now I ask that you would um, bless this meal that we're going to partake of. Thank you for the fellowship that follows. It's a great opportunity, Father, for us to love one another. We thank you for the unity here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Father, we love you. We wish to serve you. And I just ask that you be with us now. And it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. All right, thanks for coming, and uh, we'll have the kids up front.